Hey, Save This Church, good morning. Welcome to week five in this ongoing, very important, very interesting conversation on dealing with doubt and deconstruction and faith and belief, all of this in this cultural moment. Now, I'm not sure if you've been with us so far, but it has really been quite a ride. And like I just said, we've been systematically working through unbelief and skepticism and doubt and deconstruction and faith. And, and the goal of this series, and the reason why we're taking so much time in this series, is to try to find the needed signpost to either start the journey, keep going on the journey, get to the destination, not get sidetracked while we're on the journey, and actually to help a lot of people do the same. Now, I wanna stop before I get going, and I wanna do a summary of all the signposts we've discovered and the pitfalls we've talked about so far. Week one, if you were with us, we talked about how time is okay. It takes time to struggle, and we don't need to sort of resolve everything quickly. But that can't become an excuse not to get to a destination. The destination matters. We also, that week, looked, that week we looked at how Jesus viewed the Bible. And the question that was asked of us is, do you view the Bible like Jesus did? And do you live, it, live under it like he did? We also learned that at the same moment that you're struggling, that can become test or temptation depending on how you react to it. Also, if you remember, we talked about how Satan tempted Eve, Adam, and Jesus. And we were challenged to take a moment to look at our own journeys and struggles to find out if those three exact temptations are forming us, leading us down wrong ways, even though the wrong way is going to feel right and look right, and we'll even experience things that feel right. In week two, we saw that when Jesus is no longer at the center of your life, when you love the fight more than people, when you redefine or dismiss sin, or you don't face your own sin first, you'll always get shipwrecked or end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. In week three, we were given some insights on how to handle loss and fear. And we then began, just began to wrestle down, is the Christian faith intellectual? Does it have historical roots? Is it actually trustworthy? At week four, we were reminded that Jesus has actually not stopped walking with us, even if we might not think he's around anymore. We also had that sort of wake-up moment where we, we realized we might need a deeper sense or a fresh sense or dose of humility to keep going to find our way again. The way it was put, we might need to become foolish to become wise. And the real thing we talked about last, uh, last time is we actually need Jesus to open our minds to himself and his word again because we can't do this on our own or we might not want to do it on our own. So that's 15 different signposts, 15 different guiding thoughts, 15 God-given pearls of wisdom to avoid pitfalls, to avoid shipwreck, and to keep going well. Now today, I love this, today we arrive at one of my favorite followers of Jesus. His name is Thomas. Now, I think personally, he becomes one of the most helpful guides for many that would say, I once was found and now I'm lost and I might need to see again. Now, you might be this person. You were all in and now you're not. Or, or maybe that's not you, but I guarantee you know people that used to be all in. Bible study, yes. Alpha, yes. Sharing their faith, yes. Praying, yes. Leading, yes. Serving, giving, and now nothing. Now, before we get to Thomas's encounter with the risen Jesus, let's move backwards before we move forwards. 
Now, some of you have church background. Not all of you do, but lots of you do. And if you grew up in church, you know that Thomas has a nickname. Anyone want to say it? He is what Thomas? Doubting Thomas. But actually, most of us, if not the vast majority of us, we don't really think through his story. So let's start here. Thomas is one of the 12 that Jesus personally called. Thomas is in the inner circle of Jesus, and that's a really big deal. Remember all the way back in September, actually every fall, we always talk about what is discipleship. And I always quote this guy named Ray Vanderland, who helps us understand the Jewish concept of discipleship. And this is what he writes. Like other rabbis of his day, Jesus had disciples. Gifted students would approach the rabbi and ask, may I follow you? In other words, in effect saying, do I have what it takes to be like you? And the rabbi, if he accepted them, would say, yes, you got the stuff. Or he'd go, ah, you can't be my disciple. And he'd send him away to pursue a trade. Now, Jesus did something really radical. He broke the pattern when he chose his own disciples. He went after them. He'd ask his disciples to follow him, and they knew without a doubt that their, that their rabbi already believed in them. See, the disciples' deepest desire was to follow the rabbi so closely, they'd start to think like the rabbi and act like the rabbi. So why does that matter? Because Jesus went to Thomas and said, you're with me, and I know you can be my follower because I'm choosing you, and you're going to do what I do, and you're going to imitate me, in the most amazing of ways, Thomas, you're not just going to think like me. You're not just going to teach like me. You're going to actually imitate all the crazy stuff I do. We see this in Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First is Simon, who is then called Peter. His brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus. So Jesus personally calls Thomas. Thomas follows Jesus. Thomas, think about this, physically heals sick people. Thomas casts out demons. Thomas preaches in the power that Jesus gave Thomas. I mean, that is epic and amazing. But there's more to the story of Thomas. The next time we see Thomas personally mentioned is at a really tragic event. One of Jesus' closest friends is dying. His name was Lazarus. And the, the story unfolds, in my opinion, in a really crazy uh, but really insightful way. It's found in John 11. Verse 1, now uh, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end with death. No, it is for God's glory. So God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and loved Mary and loved Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he rushed and healed him. No, he stayed where he was for two more days. So in this really high stress, dangerous moment, one of his closest friends is, is actually dying and Thomas knows, and the other 11 know, that Lazarus can be healed because Jesus has healed so many people, and they also, including Thomas, have healed in his power. 
And what does Jesus do? He rushes to his friend. He heals him. No, he intentionally delays. 48 hours. He doesn't go help. He does not rush. He, he doesn't, doesn't do anything. And then, by the way, before he gets there, Lazarus dies. Now, the 12 don't know this yet. After the two-day delay, Jesus suddenly goes, mm, you know what, it's time to go. Let's go back to Judea. And the 12 say in verse 8, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you want to go back? Oh, okay, Jesus, it's really unwise to go there. People want to kill you there. Actually, they literally tried killing you already, and you want to go back? I mean, hey, listen, I know that Lazarus is really close to you, and he's sick, but this is really dangerous. The delay was probably a good idea, and then Jesus goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I should tell you, guys, um, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And I'm going to go wake him up uh, with the spiritual gift of words of knowledge. Now in play, Jesus says, guys, um, Lazarus is already dead. I I'm just going to go raise him back to life. Uh, they don't get it. It says in verse 12, uh, the disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Sleep is good if someone's sick. Jesus had been speaking about Lazarus's death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake... I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let's go to Lazarus. First of all, he declares, my friend, one of my closest friends is dead. Death is inescapable. It's ruthless. It's a harsh reality. It's unrelenting. You can't run from death. You can't cheat it, bribe it, outwit it, overcome it. You can't elude it. It doesn't discriminate. Old, young, rich, poor, healthy, sick, wicked. Death is universal. And Lazarus, he's dead. Oh, and did you notice how bizarre Jesus says, and I'm so glad my best friend's dead. I'm so joyful. I'm rejoicing. I'm celebrating. This is epic and awesome. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, Jesus. This is your friend you're talking about. Totally inappropriate reaction, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no. I'm so excited that Lazarus has died. I'm so joyful because Lazarus's death is going to bring you 12 to me, bring you to belief. I'm so excited what's going to happen. See, I delayed for a reason. See, they're about to move from seeing Jesus as rabbi only <clears throat> to maybe Christ Messiah to actually maybe understanding that he is God in flesh. Well, this is where Thomas shows up, verse 16. Then Thomas, called Didymus, which by the way means twin, said to the rest of the disciples, well, let us all go with Jesus that we may die with him. Now, he's not just being some pessimist resigned to his fate. He's being honest He's basically saying, if Jesus goes back to that place, they're going to probably try to kill or they might accomplish in killing Jesus. And so let's go die with them. I'm willing to die for Jesus. I'm willing, I'm willing to risk my life for Jesus. And all of you should be too. Wow. Well, the story goes, Jesus walks back in the area full of people who want him dead. They don't kill him. He brings Lazarus back from the dead. I think Lazarus had been dead by that point for four days. And here's the point. Thomas was all in, willing to die for Jesus and calls the others to do the same. No doubting Thomas here. Way braver than me and most of us. <clears throat> well, the next time we see Thomas is later on. And once again, Jesus starts talking about his death and leaving. And we find the story now in John 14. Jesus says this, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, my father's house has many rooms. If it wasn't so, what have I told you that I was going there to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me and you also may be where I am. Okay. I've preached this before. Let me just repeat it. Home is the metaphor Jesus chooses to use. Don't become so North American. There's no big mansions in heaven. This isn't the American dream. There's in golf courses and whatever you want. The word home is the word abode, abide, remain. It's about presence. It's not as much about the place as much as it is about the person in the place. I've shared this. Let me share it again. In Jesus's culture, when a guy got engaged to a girl, it was called an engagement period or betrothal period, but it was different then. When that happened, the guy would go away for an extended period of time. And he would go back to his father's house and he would build an extension on his dad's house. And when the extension was done, then he'd come back, get formally married and bring his bride into that part. So Jesus is saying, my father by the way, he's got this major house and I'm building all of these extensions to bring you home with me. And the point is, I'm going to be there and it's permanent. Nothing can steal this from you, take this from you. You can't lose this, can't be stolen, can't be broken away or broken into. It's permanent because my father is doing it and I'm going to be there. You also may be where I am. Just a side note. So many people around us don't understand why we live and sing and give and sacrifice how our whole life is about Jesus, a person we've never physically met. Yet for us who know him, uh, there is so much peace. We cannot wait to see him personally, but we love him. See, the secret of life is trusting in another perfect person's work, never in your own. He brings the peace. See, here's the point. We as Christians don't just want a perfect place, though it's going to be, the new heavens and the new earth. We want the perfect person and his promises that he's coming back for us personally. Never forget, there's 318 direct and indirect allusions of Jesus returning to be with us. So then Jesus says, you know the, you know the way to the place I'm going. And here, here it is. Thomas then says to Jesus, Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Show us the way, Thomas says. His honesty, his questions, his inquisitive nature pour out, and then Jesus does it again. He gives an answer that's not expected. He points not to a place, not to a road, not to an idea, not to a religious system. He points to himself and utters the words that have changed billions of lives in every culture on earth and actually offended billions more. So Thomas asked this question, and Jesus responds to Thomas with this. Jesus answered, I'm the way, and, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to God, the Father, except through me. Notice, Jesus isn't just a way, he's the way. He redeems us. Notice, he doesn't only speak truth, he's truth incarnate. He is truth. He doesn't just give out life or resurrection, he is resurrection and life. And by the way, here is the gospel fully expressed in one sentence. There is one God, and we're called to know him. We're sinful, separated, spiritually dead, and the only way back to the one true living God called Father is through Jesus, his son, period. This is an exclusive declaration about the uniqueness of Jesus. That's why Peter, after Jesus' resurrection, would declare this in the middle of a pluralistic world in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be 
saved. How could Jesus be so bold? How could Jesus say not all religions go to heaven? <clears throat> not all religions lead to enlightenment. Only him. Oh, the answer is simple. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's not just a priest. He's not just a religious leader. He's not just a history maker. He is God in flesh. The only one who can bring us back to God is God himself. That's why Jesus says in verse 7, If you really know me, you know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Okay, watch this. So Thomas has been called. And Thomas has been with Jesus near the beginning. And Thomas has already preached in the power of Jesus, cast out demons in the power of Jesus, healed people in the power of Jesus. Thomas's inquisitive nature and real questioning leads to one of the top three most significant statements about Jesus's work in history. And Thomas has already declared he's willing to die for Jesus and calls the other uh, disciples to do the same. And in a personal conversation, Thomas has been promised eternal life and guaranteed presence with Jesus in the new heaven, in the new earth. And all of that does not include things like, oh, I don't know, he was there at the feeding of the 5,000. He was there at the giving of the Sermon on the Mount. He was there when Lazarus was raised from the dead and all the healings and all the miracles and all the things. But now, none of that matters anymore. Because Jesus is dead. It's all lost. Remember two weeks ago on Easter when Jesus first physically appeared to the disciples in that upper room that was locked? And it says in Luke 24, 38, Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And they still did not believe because of joy and amazement. It's too good to be true. This is epic. He asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Remember that? Amazing, life-changing, world-altering, hope-giving, joy-restoring. But we miss something if we read the Easter account too quickly. If you read the whole Easter story and all the accounts, Jesus appears five times in one day to Mary Magdalene, to the other women, to the two men on the road to Emmaus, which we talked about last week, and to the 10 disciples. But one person is not at any of those encounters. Thomas. John 20, 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. I've also imagined it like this. We saw Jesus. He's alive. I think the words would have hung in the air. I'm sure Thomas would have responded out of pain. I'm sure his body language was anything but open. Oh, we've seen the Lord. I'm sure those words rang in his tired head. The absurdity of what they were telling him. How dare they? Why would his friends drag him down another hellish road of murder and torture if the loss of life was not enough in the first place. I don't believe you, Peter. I don't believe you, John. I don't believe the rest of you. I can almost hear him saying with sarcasm or gritted teeth, fine, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. I love that Thomas demands both visual and physical, tactile proof before he's going to believe any such crazy story. 
One person puts it like this, no skepticism could be more thoroughgoing than this. It's perhaps worth noting that no one else in the whole New Testament makes demands like this before believing. I want to see and I want to touch or I'm out. It's like Thomas speaks for so many of us. This is just too good to be true. Life after death, forgiveness, hope beyond the mundane, all the things we humans are primordially uh, fearful of, really, death overcome. Oh, don't misunderstand Thomas's cry. It's not rooted just in sort of jaded, skeptical, modern unbelief. It's not rooted in this naturalism, scientific, concrete, proven it, prove it in a laboratory, or I'm out. No, no, it's also deeply emotional. It's hopelessness. It's doubt rooted in pain, then worked out in facts. And by the way, side note, most deeply skeptical and unbelieving people if you can have an honest, long-term conversation, can partially trace their unbelief back to experience, unmet expectations, unmet dreams, or the perception of being let down by God, church, knowledge, or others. It's not just unbelievers that resonate with Thomas. This is actually one of the major reasons why those who used to be at the center, all in for Jesus, all in for his church, all in for his mission, no longer. Never dismiss the power of pain, bitterness, and unresolved or unrealistic, unbiblical expectations. Well, God hears Thomas's challenge. He sees his broken heart. He sees his loss. He doesn't act quickly. Here we are again. God waits. God gives time for Thomas to think, to ponder, to wonder. I think it's eight days pass. Now, he's still among this group that he really is upset at, still eating with them and wondering with them. He's still under threat like the rest of them. Again, God knows the time we all need. Now, this is what's amazing. Jesus chooses to meet the whole group again. But as he meets the whole group, his purpose actually is for Thomas. A week later, his disciples, verse 26, were in the house again. Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood uh, uh, among them and said, Peace be with you. The doors are locked. They're still wanted men. And during the, you could call it their second lockdown, Jesus comes physically into the room in a divine way. And he deals with the fear by again pronouncing peace. Then knowing everything that Thomas had said, everything that Thomas had believed in his heart, he looks at his friend, his hurt, confused, angry, let down friend. And in grace and in mercy and in kindness, he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stout, stop doubting and believe. It's okay, Thomas. It's me. You, you can put confidence in me. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to let you down. I, I'm not going to abandon you. I never have. I'm here. I'm real. I'm still moving. Now, now, Thomas, just like some of you today, faces sort of a crossroads moment. Christian faith or unbelief. Well, Thomas, in this case, was not as much a skeptic as maybe he thought. At the sight of Jesus, his, his friend and his teacher, all his doubts and questions left to the point where the test he had set up to disprove the idea of resurrection and make fools of his former friends vanishes. And then he does something 
that actually is quite shocking. He, he cries out in verse 28 to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Shame, regret moves to reverence and worship, but he calls Jesus God. Now, huge leap. Remember, Thomas is an Orthodox Jewish man. He's among 10 other Jewish men who are Orthodox, and there is only one God. And Thomas calls Jesus the true God, Yahweh, Elohim, the creator God, Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. This, this breaks the Ten Commandments. This is blasphemous. Actually, doing this, uh, you would get stoned for doing this, like executed. Jesus, if he was not God, should have gone, whoa, 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 whoa. I know I'm resurrected. I know this is really exciting. But you need to understand, I'm not God. I'm just something else. I'm a semi-divine thing, or I'm just an epic human. No, no. Jesus doesn't redirect anything. He accepts Thomas's statement. Hello. And then Jesus says, because you've seen me, you have believed. Ah, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed or will believe like us. At this moment, remember, there's not a church building in the world. The name Christian has not been invented yet. There's not a pastor, elder, or bishop anywhere. No one around the world is carrying around a New Testament. The cross has not been redeemed. It's still an instrument of horrific death. There's maybe 12 or 15 people that believe at this point. But the world's never going to be the same. Well, it says at the end, Jesus, verse 30, did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not even recorded in this book. That's the Gospel of John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The climax of the story returns to the starting point. Why is all of this happening? So we can believe the purpose of Jesus' claims, his work, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his physical resurrection is found in this great summary. The, the invitation is to believe in and on Jesus. Now, here's what's wild. See that phrase that you may believe? In Greek, it can read two ways. It first can read like this, that you that do not believe consider crossing the line of faith and meeting Jesus. You believe for the first time. It also can be read like this, that these are written so you will continue to believe. The encouragement, the power to keep going. I'm alive so you can keep going. So which one is it? And I'm just going to say to you, yes, it's both. Meet Jesus for the first time and believe or keep on believing in Jesus in the middle of real life, in the middle of deconstruction and doubt and skepticism and all the things. Okay, why do I love Thomas? I love Thomas because his, his story shows that we're complex as human beings, full of big questions, intellectually, emotionally, ra relationally, rationally, all of it. I love that he does not hold back any of his questions. Jesus takes his questions seriously. I love that he had this really intense fire for Jesus before, then lost everything, and then he comes back and actually he becomes, well, an unbelievable leader in Jesus' movement. So the question is, how does Thomas's story help us deal with, again, skepticism, unbelief, doubt, deconstruction, and faith? 
Well, number one, there is a call to continue to believe, to trust, to keep on believing in Jesus, on Jesus, and with Jesus. You know, I love when one pastor said it like this, faith and evidence are not unrelated in the spiritual life of a Christian. But our starting point is crucial. Trust in God must come first. Then evidence becomes helpful. Apart from belief, evidence is virtually meaningless. So I love when he says, I think of it like this, doubt plus evidence equals confusion. Trust plus evidence equals confidence. You're saying, well, what's the point? Here it is. A lot of you that are really struggling with your faith, the most significant thing you need to do is literally out loud say, Jesus, I still trust you. You, you just, you just got to say, Jesus, I still trust you. It's like when a marriage is really struggling and divorce is on sort of on the table. The turning point always is when the spouses say, I'm still going to trust you. I'm still going to fight for this. And then other things fall into place. The invitation by the Holy Spirit to some of you who are on the verge of leaving the faith or are really struggling is you haven't in the last month, two months, year, two and a half years actually said out loud, Jesus, I still trust you. Do it out loud. Things will change. Here's the other thing that we learn that we haven't talked about, I think, so far in this whole series. You have to do your deconstructing your struggling, your skepticism in community, in real Christian community. Let me read this again. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Thomas had told them to take a hike, stronger words than that, a week before. He didn't believe what they said. He did not believe at all that Jesus is ridden from the dead. He did not believe what the women had said. And yet he was still in community with them, eating and struggling. And then Jesus came and stood among them. You have to work out your doubt and your skepticism and your unbelief and deconstruction of faith with others. With others. Don't go on YouTube and watch a thousand videos and you have no context for where they're coming from. Sit with people and struggle with people, and be honest, hold nothing back, and watch the risen Jesus show up in community where two or three gather, Jesus says, I am there. By the way, here's a different angle on it for some of you. Some of you want desperately to be on fire again, and you just don't think you can be. Thomas shows us it's possible to have life again after total collapse. He actually shows us that the person that used to be willing to die for Jesus and actually believe Jesus was the only way to heaven and all this stuff, who loses everything, can be fully in for Jesus again. In other words, let me say this to you. You can worship in passion again. You can do amazing things in Jesus' name again. You can actually even love the church again. You can love other Christians again. You can be changed again. This can all come back. How do I know that? Well, hey, this is what happens, but it's what happens after the biblical account that brings us home. Have you ever asked the question, whatever happened to Thomas? I mean, he's not really mentioned other than one other time, I think, in Acts. Well, church history is really interesting. Church tradition and history tells us that Thomas traveled in the Roman Empire and then outside and became a missionary. And he went as far as India to a place called Chennai, which I've been to in South India. 
And he actually led some people to Christ and baptized them there. And then some religious leaders from that community were so upset, they speared him to death. Thomas is martyred in India preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. And what's wild is, if you go to India today, there are church communities called Thomas communities that trace all of their church roots 2,000 years later back to his preaching and his death for Jesus. He was killed for Jesus, the one he loved that he did not believe and he believed again. It is possible to use the old word to truly be revived again. One last thing as we get going in the next few weeks. I know some of you are like, I'm still not in. I'm not sure, again, if this is rational, historical, or logical. I'm like Thomas. I, I need a lot more proof than that. That's okay. So here's what we're going to do. For the next three weeks, we're going to do something we did, believe this or not, five years ago. Some of you were around in our community at Easter where we did this series called Smoke and Mirrors, where we worked out intellectually and rationally, can a rational, intellectually, historically aware person actually believe that Jesus really existed, he really died, he really rose from the dead? So my invitation to the skeptic and seekers among you come for the next three weeks because we're gonna build out why this is not just encounter-oriented, this is historical and factual and true. And I wanna say to the whole church, this would be the time for you to send the links to all your friends and family or to bring them actually in person to a site for the next three weeks because we're gonna walk through painstakingly why this is true. It's gonna be an encouragement for lots of us because we already do believe. It's gonna reorient some of us back from deconstruction to reconstruction and for others, it's going to bring eternal life. So let's end this way. Let's, let's pray a few things. Uh, number one, thanks, Jesus, that you keep showing up. <laughs> uh, thanks that you take our complexity and our anger and our sadness and our intellectual questions seriously. Thank you uh, that you're good with that. And so a few things. Number one, help certain Christians in our community or beyond to say out loud to Jesus, I still trust you. Just help them with that, Lord. With other Christians, <laughs> they're just hopeless. And they're like, I can could, I could never go back to what I once was. But Thomas actually shows it's possible. So risen Jesus, would you show up in the life of some kids and some teens, especially some young adults, some adults, and show up and actually bring life again and literally light them on fire again in the truest and purest way. And lastly, would you be, begin to lead and guide over the next three weeks as we intellectually and historically and logically work out why the Christian faith isn't just encounter, but it's lived history. Open our minds and our eyes. Continue to help us not be shipwrecked or lost on the journey, but find the destination, which is Jesus. Help certain people to believe for the first time and help the rest of us who know you to keep on believing. This is what we pray in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen. We'll see you next week as we keep going on this journey together.